SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Look at this setup. January 10th, market call, one o'clock on the East Coast. Swizzle here. Dan there. There she EY is. from SoFi What's joining that? us. What do they say when you're I, in the house in real oh, life? IRL. IRL in real yeah, life, which is exciting. Doing. I mean, this it is, is actually exciting. very exciting. Yeah. Lots to talk about today. First, I want to give a shout out birthday. Paul Maloney, you know, Paul. I love Paul. Actually, Elizabeth met Paul as well. Yeah. 60th birthday today. Happy birthday, wow. Paul. I'm sure there are a lot of people with birthdays today. I also want to say, Dan. Yeah. Great job with the University of Michigan the other night. Right. They, I mean, you've been on fire. 12 and 2 incredible. in the NFL. It's been 10 and 1 the last two weeks. It's like fire emoji. And 2 and 1 in the college football playoff. No one else is fire emoji, yeah. the market. So it's good yeah. that Elizabeth's here. But let's look at the rundown <laughs> because we're going to check some SP charts and sectors because that's what we do. EV stocks are getting wackoed. And see, a lot of people don't realize. You got the CPI. You got the CPI. Yeah, and then you got the JP Morgan and some banks. On Friday. So as much as it appears a slow week, there are actually a lot of things going on. Dan, how are you? I'm doing great. And it's great to have everybody in the studio. We're going to be doing more of this. And actually, we're going to go OT today, Liz. We know that you have to get down to the New York Stock Exchange because you're Why? joining our very good friend, Scott Wapner, on the closing bell. Stop it. And I think the TRB is on with you, too. Is that right? He sure is. Wait a second. Stop for a second. Yeah. So if you say the TRB, (laughs) right, because the T in TRB is the. Yeah. It's like, and I know we want to get into the sector. I apologize. We do. But if you're one of those people that says, what's your PIN number? Yeah. I'm going to F and crush you like a bug. I got you. Because the N in PIN. No, I'm not. First of all, I'm not telling anybody my PINs. Is Um, number. So really quickly, because we're going to do our schedule programming. Then we're going to go Q&A. Okay. We did that we're, last week. We did, and it was it a was lot fun. of fun. So we're yep. here. So tee those questions up. Amanda's going to work through them, and we're going to hit as many of them as possible. I thought today, Guy and mm-hmm. Liz, mm-hmm. we'd start a little bit because last week, you know, the market opened, you know, not particularly great. We had uh, this year-end sort of crush higher. It seemed like everything was being marked up. And then the things that you would expect that might have overshot were getting sold off. But then this week, we kind of corrected some of those ills from last week. The S&P is basically flat on the year at this point. Mm-hmm. So let's look at some of these sectors. Amanda's going to throw these up here. And this is basically um, on a year-to-date basis. You see that's outperformed. So it's defensive sort of stuff that's outperformed, Liz. Talk yep. to me yep. a little bit about what's green this year, okay, which was, you know, for the most part, underperformed last year. And then what's red this year that outperformed last year. Well, I think, first of all, if you look at, and and my blog that will drop tomorrow talks about this a little bit, but if you look at what happened towards the end of last year, that last week in December, the rally kind of conked out. It didn't necessarily turn over, but it just conked out, stopped going up. And a lot of times I'll look at pairs of sectors to try to figure out what the market is thinking about cyclicality. So Mm -hmm. you can look at things like consumer discretionary versus consumer staples. You can look at utilities versus transportation, right? And what happened was from the end of October through about the end of December, 
those pro cyclical signals, excuse me, yeah. were going off, right? It, and everything looked positive. It was supposed to be expanding. Everything was great. And then once the rally conked out, everything turned in the other direction. So what you're seeing now is some of this, this is a great chart. I'm glad you brought it up. I, this is Mario's Incredible. chart. So what you're seeing now, you see that rollover. Those are some of those pairs. You see transportation versus utes. You see discretionary versus staples falling over. And then gold and copper is probably the most dramatic one. So what's happening in the sector makeup so far this year, or maybe since the last week in December, is that you're just seeing the rotation out of some of that enthusiastic pro-cyclical pro-growth kind of stuff into uh, some things that had lagged so, since October. So Guy, if you're moving out of pro-cyclical, pro-growth, what, what does that mean? So you're getting more defensive here, right? One would think. Yeah. But it doesn't, the market's not trading def pretty defensively yeah. right now. Right. We'll talk about NVIDIA. I mean, Apple's back on its horse. Microsoft yep. has gotten back on the beam as well. Some of these, obviously, semi-stocks have rallied. So high valuation stocks are seemingly invoked. So as much as it the knee-jerk reaction to what Elizabeth just said is, yeah, people are getting more defensive, but the reality mm -hmm. is they're not. And I look at this, I mean, healthcare right out of the bat, right, yeah. right off the start of the year. For example, you pull up a Merck chart, which was floundering most of last year from May until sort of December. Merck went from sort of 117 down to 100 and basically flatlined for a while. Well, guess what? Before our very eyes, Merck has made a new all-time high. If you want to throw that chart up, Eli Lilly back on its horse. Yeah. And it, there you go. Amgen as well. So healthcare is actually doing pretty well. Now, I don't, it's interesting. If you had told me all the things that would transpire, if you'd said, guy, NVIDIA is going to make a new all-time high breaking out, how's healthcare going to be doing? I would have said it's going to be floundering yeah. and it's going to be underperforming, but quite the opposite is happening. So a lot of cross currents here for sure. Yeah, let, we'll hit tech in a second here because I think some of the things you highlight are really important because again, last week felt like, okay, maybe this is a couple weeks sort of thing, digest some of these sorts of gains that we saw. They were powering a lot of the gains in the markets overall, but that is amazing. Yeah. Look, look at that chart right there. Okay, and look at that breakout level. We were talking about um, XBI and XLV last night on CNBC's Fast Money a little bit, and, and I think Carter was thinking of the XLV. That move from 52-week lows to 52-week highs right there. In two months. Um, in two months, yeah. It is is actually an only a 15% move though. Okay, so the biotech stocks have moved 30% if you were looking at the XBI. This one looks really interesting to me. Maybe they can pull up the members of the XLV. Yeah, so look at that. It was a much wider range, if you will. But if you think about Lilly, which powered a lot of the gains in the healthcare space last year, you know, now you have Johnson & Johnson, you have UNH, there's a handful of other names and they've kind of joined the party. The XLV guy on a um, valuation standpoint and also technical, maybe they can pull out the XLV to a five-year chart because talk about this 120 mm -hmm. to 140 range. You get a bit of a back and fill here. That could set up, especially when you consider all the other pharma companies that are looking to join this party, right? As far as the GLP-1 party. And then if you look at some of the individual names, like a Lilly that also has the potential of an Alzheimer's approval. You know what I mean? There's a whole host of other things. That one looks a little interesting to me. Guy, talk to me how you're thinking about like broadening it out from biotech a little bit. Well, if you look at this, you would say there's no way we're going to fail here yet again. As a matter of fact, the fact that we traded down to the moving average held basically yeah. for a day and bounced as strongly as we have suggests we're going to break out to a new all-time high. And I think actually that's what's going to happen. And to your point about sort of the broadening out, I think it's a good sign that it's not just, look, Eli Lilly obviously it's a huge component of this, but it's not just Eli Lilly. Your Pfizer's gotten off the mat. As yeah. I mentioned before, Merck, J&J &J has found a pulse. UNH. 
Look at Medtronic, for example. Now, and, and, and I can't speak intelligently about where it falls in some of these ETFs, but but sort of anecdotally, if you want to pull an MDT chart up, MDT, mm-hmm. this was a stock that was left for dead in the wake of the whole GLP-1 thing, which I totally get. And then somebody woke up one day and said, wait a second, this is a great company. Uh, This valuation is ridiculously cheap. And oh, by the way, we traded down to a prior low. This is gonna bounce. We've talked about this on Fast Money. So it's not the healthcare sector is now a broad swath of stocks participating. So, so it's interesting, Liz, and the healthcare sector is also benefiting. I think a lot of folks who are thinking about generative AI and, and how that is basically really right now, 2023, it really was a tech story. But mm-hmm. when you think about the potentials within biotech and big pharma, it actually, you can see it playing out over the next couple of years. How are you thinking about, like, let's say, a sector like this that's deemed to be defensive, didn't trade particularly well when everybody was just going for the growthiest stuff last year? Are you starting to think uh, about some of these sectors and how they might perform, especially if they were to kind of benefit from some of this kind of generative AI infusion? And then there's also been a ton of M&A in the space, too. Yep. So I've been talking about healthcare for a little while for a few reasons. Here's the thing about healthcare in the large cap space that is usually seen as defensive. When you think about health insurance, you, there's a bunch of companies that are pretty boring in that space. But then as you move down the cap spectrum, or if you get into the biotech and pharma space, it's more growthy. I've thought it was attractive for a while because everything that was so rate sensitive in the growth side, right? Communications, tech, discretionary, you could get growth out of healthcare and it's not as rate sensitive. So there was there should have been more appetite there, in my opinion, earlier. And if we're going into a period where small caps are coming off the mat too, you want pharma and biotech in the small cap Mm -hmm. space. And healthcare is a much bigger sector in small cap indices than it is in large cap indices. So it drives those much more, especially small cap growth. So I do think healthcare has a good opportunity here. I mean, that's a pretty big run a long run, yeah. maybe we have to give a little back. So the but, back and fill. See, like looking at that yeah. chart again, if you got back towards that breakout, right, just from a couple weeks ago, if you will, that mm-hmm. might be a good spot to start picking at it. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, I mean, maybe even before that, I think that this is going to be a year where you have to really be disciplined about dollar cost averaging in. It's yeah. not a year where I think you're going to find a bottom or a big top and decide to sell it all or buy it all at one time. I think we really do have to be disciplined about entering and exiting this year. Yeah, so it's interesting like one sector that we're all going to be focused on, I think the entire markets are on Friday mm-hmm. is going to be banks. All right. So yep. it, again, if we think about just the price action that we saw over the last two weeks or so, right now, the fact that the S&P is basically unchanged heading into the start of Q4 earnings season, Guy, talk to us about the importance of bank earnings that they basically, and we've talked about this, we're going to do a heavy chart check with Carter tomorrow on Market Call on all of these names into their earnings, but just like, like directionally, all right, we we know that with yields coming off as hard as they did in Q4, right, from 5% to 4% where we are right now in the 10-year, a lot of those mark-to-market held to maturity books are going to look a lot better. Mm-hmm. But does it get harder from here on out? Does the visibility get worse, right? We're expected lower GDP growth this year. Yeah, there's been some good M&A, but if you're one of these large money center banks and you've seen a massive slowdown in underwriting, whether it be mortgages or a whole host of other things, might it be a tougher guide period as we hear from these banks over the next week or two? Yeah, lots to unravel there. So the short answer is the heft of the banks now is not what it was 10 or 15 years ago. There was a period of time where as the banks went, you could pretty much understand where the S&P 500 was going to go. That no longer is the case vis-a-vis their weighting in the the entire S&P, which I totally understand. But that doesn't mean the importance of what they say 
should be completely just sort of thrown away or not paid attention to. I think it's going to be very important to hear. You mentioned hold to maturity. I think at its trough, Bank of America had about $118 billion hold to maturity paper loss. That's when 10-year yields were about 5% or so. Obviously, you know where yields are now. That number is probably in the 80s or something. It doesn't matter because I don't think they were necessarily punished all that much for that, again, mark-to-market loss. So I don't think they're going to be rewarded if it starts to look better. Um, and if yields start to go higher, obviously that HTM loss, will that paper loss will magnify yet again. But here's the thing. Pull up a JP Morgan chart real quick. And you just mentioned the speed with which some of these stocks went from lows to highs. Yep. And if you look at a five-year chart in JP Morgan, you will see that the level we just traded up to was almost to the penny that prior high, I want to say, in the middle of 2021. That's a bit concerning. I mean, this is a stock that historically goes back and visits its moving average you know, a couple times a year. You can make an argument that the first time it's going to do it is on the back of earnings this year. And I actually think that's what's going to happen. Right, let's pull up a one year really quickly, Liz. And I want to get your take on, on just the banks in general. I know mm-hmm. that we talked about it a little bit on the on the tape podcast that dropped on Monday. But now with a couple more trading days, it will be interesting. Throw up that one year chart. Okay. Um, look at how quickly, to your point, Guy, mm-hmm. about getting back. This is just a one year, but this has gotten back to that kind of high from 2021. If you look at the 170 put in the weekly, okay, it's basically offered at $2.50. That's one and a half percent of the stock price here. And you look at how quickly this stock, again- And you're talking about JP Morgan now, 170. So we have a different chart, but if you pull up a JP Morgan chart, yes. Thank you. All right. And you can just, maybe they want to draw that that uptrend here. It's just broken that uptrend, okay? So you could pay 250 on this Friday. If you were long this stock, okay, and you thought the chance that they were going to disappoint or guide lower or something like that, um, that sort of protection seems kind of cheap. Not great on a two-day basis, okay? But it just depends, you know, what you're looking to do. Go out another week to the Jan 19th, okay? That's from a week from this coming Friday. That same 170 put will cost you about $2.80, mm-hmm. okay? So not much more than the weekly. That's where you'd want to be if you were looking for protection. The flip side of that, the 170 call, okay, if you're looking to say, ah, maybe they beat raise and the stock continues to go higher, also costs about 270 275 or something like that. So options are really cheap, despite the fact we've had these massive runs. I just wanted to highlight that, Liz. Now, talk to us a little bit now um, how you're thinking about this sector in general. And really, I think it's about visibility. We're going to hear different things from different folks. You know, Jamie Dimon has been really negative about the markets. He's been really on the higher for longer camp as it relates to yields or so. If he were to change his tune a little bit, that could do something, I think, to sentiment as it relates to bank stocks. Absolutely. I I mean, this is always the week that kicks off earnings season. It's exciting to hear from the banks. There's a chart in my blog this week uh, called Banks, a Cyclical Bright Spot. Mm. Now, I showed the chart before about the rolling over of some of those other cyclical indicators. Banks are one of the only industry groups hanging in there, like really cyclical indicator that has not fallen off. And then you start to ask yourself, what's supporting them? What's keeping them afloat? And part of this is why I've been positive on banks, and I am for the short term, because you've got a market that is expecting a drop in short-term yields as the Fed starts to cut rates, right? Which would cause, hopefully, an increase in net interest margin opportunity for those banks. Obviously, some banks are going to benefit from that more than others. The ones that are more dependent on consumer lending in particular should benefit from that more than some others. But if that happens at the same time as economic data still hanging in, you don't have as many recession fears and you've got cyclicals not taking it on the chin for macro reasons. So banks are sort of 
sloughing along at this higher level mm-hmm. and not showing the weakness that we've seen in other sectors. But here's the thing. That could all end by Friday at mm-hmm. about noon, right? We've got everybody reporting, all the big ones reporting, plus we will have had a CPI print mm-hmm. before that. And I think all of that is going to affect yields quite a bit. There's going to continue to be a lot of yield volatility, which is usually tough for banks to do well in. So you that, also, oh, I'm sorry. I was no, real t- quick. You also brought with you, before we get into it, most cyclicality measures are fading. You brought that chart along with you as well. So yeah. it's interesting. You got a bright spot on one side of the, yeah. but then the flip side of the coin is this other chart that you brought. So speak to this. Yeah. So, I mean, it's still, it just continues to be contradictions, right? My mm-hmm. outlook for 2024 was there was a section called wrapped in contradictions. And this is another one of them where nothing is clear across the board. And I think that's why we end up with a market that again, finds itself near an all-time high, but can't get over it because investors sit back and ask themselves, do stocks really deserve to be higher than they were at that point? And so far, the answer is no, maybe we deserve to be here because nothing has broken down, but it's not entirely clear by looking at market signals or economic signals that we are in the clear and that there should be more room for upside. Right. And, and that places more emphasis on tomorrow's CPI reading. So month over month, uh, month over month, expecting 0.2% um, increase year over year, 3.2, 3.8% X food um, in energy. Liz, talk to us a little bit about your expectations because we have to go back to that October reading, right? And November 13th, where we had that cooler than expected data that got, I, I think the gap was like mm-hmm. 2% higher like that in a yep. straight line. Um, yep. Again, are you expecting any big divergences with consensus here? And do we have the potential for a big move one way or another, whether it comes in hotter or cooler? Or obviously, I, I, I mean, I think the way the market's positioned right now with unchanged on the year, it feels like expectations are not particularly high for a divergence one way or another from consensus. Yeah, I, I don't expect a divergence, but I don't have any lens into it better than anybody else does. I think the risk here is that CPI comes in higher than expectations or, I mean, and it would be a move up, even if it came in bang on expectations, it's a move up from last month. So if we have a CPI print that stays that way, uh, I think people start to get nervous. Maybe some of those cuts get priced out. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that's interesting, and this is what I think we're going to hear a lot of over the next month or so is CPI will stay at this level. PCE continues to fall. PCE continues to be more attractive if we're using that as an inflation measure because shelter makes up such a larger portion of CPI and Mm -hmm. shelter has not come down. So that's going to be the way that even if it does come in Mm -hmm. hotter than expectations, it'll get explained away because people say, well, it's just shelter. If you take shelter out, everything's fine. And again, I know I say this ad nauseum, you can't just take everything out. That's a problem because people still have to buy that stuff. And it doesn't change the stress that it has put on the economy. All it changes is perhaps the reaction of the Fed. And I think that's the reason why people feel so miserable. When you poll people right now about the economy, a lot of people say the economy is not that particularly good. It's all on the back of what Elizabeth just said. And that sort of flies in the face of a stock market that seemingly never goes down. Mm -hmm. And obviously an administration that wants to sort of get in front of the economy because they feel so many good things. The, The key to all of this is the fact that people are still paying more for things and they're pissed off. Yep. Now, whether it manifests itself in the numbers tomorrow, I have no idea because this whole super core thing and they strip everything <laughs> out. But I'll tell you, the cumulative effect of inflation over the last two years 
has been in a word devastating for most people. What do you think, Guy, is the the pain trade in yields right now? We it, it's kind of interesting, and we've been saying this for a bit. My view has been, I think that the market for a while is going to be three and a half at four and a half percent, and here we are at four percent, right in the middle of that yeah. in the ten year U.S. Treasury yield. What what do you think is um, obviously if yields were to go precipitously higher, okay, that means that the economy is doing better, reading like at least the economic readings are hotter, right, and therefore the likelihood that the Fed is going to be able to cut right now, the CME Fed fund tracker is pricing about a 65% probability of a cut at the March meeting. Okay. If that gets pushed out, you know, that means yields are probably moving higher. It means the dollar is probably moving higher. Um, right. And then that would mean, I think that equities go lower. So you're asking me what the pain trade is. Yeah. The pain trade is yields going again, probably back to four and a quarter percent, if not higher than that. Now I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but that's the yeah. pain trade. And I don't think people are taking that into consideration at all. I think at the end of last year, for many people, it was a foregone conclusion that we're never going to we're not going to see a four and a half handle again in the near future in terms of 10-year yields. And I think that's somewhat misguided. So to answer that question specifically, the pain trade is higher in yields. And I still haven't given up. The fact that I think yields can surprise people to the upside this year. Liz, what are you thinking on yields? Uh, I think the pain trade is definitely higher in the 10-year. I think on the shorter end of the curve, if we start to see some cooling, you're going to see that drop like a rock mm -hmm. and it would scare people. So I think the pain trade, it's different long end versus short end. Um, the short end's been pretty sticky since some of those cooler inflation reads back in October, November. Um, but I think the pain trade is is definitely higher on the Yet here we are in... In early January, mm -hmm. so February is approaching very quickly. We have a holiday on Monday. It's going to be here before you know it. If we make it to February, you know this, Elizabeth, it'll be the longest inversion that we've seen in terms of the yield curve, the one that we talk about. There are others as well. People do three-month, 10-year, mm -hmm. two-year, whatever. It's been inverted now for the better part of, I want to say, 20 or so months, if not mm -hmm. longer. Mm -hmm. That's problematic. And what people either don't realize or fail to acknowledge or think somehow it's going to be different is that the longer the inversion, typically, the worse the downturn. Mm -hmm. And we haven't even come close to feeling any effects. Speak to that, EY. Well, you know what's interesting? And and I'm not going to you know classify anybody as a bull or a bear, but what's interesting is that I don't hear bulls talking about the inversion at all. At all. Because it doesn't prove mm -hmm. the point. It's like, how do, how do we get out of it? How do you get out of the inversion without pain? It's never really happened before, especially one that's been this deep in the prolonged. And that's the part that continues to keep me up at night. The reason that I can't jump to the other side of the fence and say, okay, I'm positive because it, it flies in the face of how this is going to shake out. Now, it doesn't mean it has to cause some catastrophic thing, right? But typically the reason that the curve is going to re-steepen is because of what I just said before, you've got cooling economic mm -hmm. data. It starts to re-steepen because the Fed's going to cut rates. The Fed is only going to cut rates here if they are number one, satisfied with inflation prints, mm -hmm. which they're not yet. He's made that abundantly clear. They're not satisfied yet. Or if data starts to come in considerably weaker and it hasn't yet. So I still expect that those rate cuts are going to get pushed mm -hmm. further out. I think that the odds of a March cut are going to come down and they'll get pushed further out. But again, moving that two-year portion of the curve, keeping the tenure where it is, is not going to feel good to equity markets. You know, it's interesting. We um, had Steve Eisman from Newberger on Fast Money last week, um, and I had Dan Niles on OK Computer that dropped today on Wednesday, people. Check it out in your favorite podcast yeah, store. Or, or on YouTube, for that matter. But Dan and I went over for you know almost an hour um, on just kind of you know the macro and how he's thinking about how it relates to tech and rates and, and the like. And there's a lot of really great stuff in there. But both of those guys said, 
which I thought was really interesting, that they do not expect the Fed to move as much as the market is expecting mm-hmm. right now. The dot plots are saying three cuts this year. I think market expectations are for five or six or so. So I do think that's interesting. And what you just laid out, Liz, is also something that will be very confounding in the beginning, right? So Fed Chair Powell told us last month at his presser, they're not going to wait for inflation to get to their 2% target. They're going to start to cut. But the other thing is, what else are they seeing, right? And this is what Jeffrey Gunlock was saying. I think the day you were on of that Fed meeting mm-hmm. With Scott Wapner on closing bell, he was basically saying, listen, when they start to cut, they're going to go because they're seeing something in the economy, you know, and and again, so uh, you and I guy have made this point again and again and again over the last couple of months. History has demonstrated very clearly, at least over the last 30 years, is that it's the period from which the expectations for a hiking pause happens. And then you have that period between the pause and the cuts. That's great for stocks. That's clearly been the case. Going back to your inversion point, the longer we get, the harder it might be for the economy to achieve that soft landing goal, which is right now consensus, right? And so if everybody's on one side of this, why I started that conversation is like, what's the pain trade? And then here, if we go to four and a quarter and everyone's positioned for a soft landing, okay, that would kind of say, okay, well, maybe stocks and bonds can go up together as they did, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. last year. But this brings me to tech. And we started off talking about sectors. Let's pull up the XLK. 43% of that is Apple and Microsoft combined basically $6 trillion in market tech. Guy, we talked about this yesterday mm-hmm. looking at the NDX. That was a near perfect check back to that breakout level. Now, obviously, Microsoft and Apple drove a lot of that. Right now, Apple's still down 4.5% of the year. Microsoft's up on the year. So two kind of diverging sort of setups. Thoughts here, and then maybe we'll pull up NVIDIA really quickly because we hit this one yesterday. I mean, the stock went up 10% in a straight line over the last All right, so just keep an eye on this chart, folks. Just visualize this. And then Stephen and or Jacob, you could pull up an Apple chart with the moving average. I only bring that up because in October of last year, this... XLK traded down to and bounced right off the moving average. So just keep that in mind. Apple did the exact same thing in October. There you go. I mean, that's an Apple chart now. The difference between the two is, once again, Apple traded down to its moving average and seemingly held and is bounced. XLK got nowhere close to it because it's been buoyed by some of these other names that you just mentioned. So I guess to answer your question, if Apple can get off the mat here and just sort of hold serve, you know, the XLK is probably held for the yeah. foreseeable. Not, again, I want to be crystal clear. I mean, that's just from a technical thing. And the charts don't lie. I mean, you can see it here. You see that Apple traded down the same way XLK did in October when all the tech stocks were getting whacked, held the moving average and bounced. This time, Apple traded back down to it and bounced. The XLK didn't come close, which probably means it's got room. Well, to the, the Apple is really interesting, made a new um, all time high in the middle of last month and then sold off about 10 percent. To your point, it's kind of holding that 200 day. The sentiment got so bad. How many dying grades guide this 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 the last two weeks? Three. There were three in the course of a like three day yeah, period. And it, it's really funny when you look at the rest of the mag seven and we quote these things because it's just a, a really important input to sentiment. I mean, most of these stocks have 95 percent of the analyst ratings that buy. OK, mm-hmm. none of them have there's like, you know, and so when you look at Apple, there are 32 buy ratings, 
16 holds in five cells. Like I can't remember the last time that Apple had that much divergence as far as like relative to the, its peers in mm-hmm. mega cap tech line. So Liz, how are you thinking about this a little bit? Because it is hard when you have these two stocks that make up 6 trillion, yep. they make up 40% of the weight of that. They make up what, like 13% of the S&P 500 or so. So it, it, it's, we've been harking on this for a long, harping on this for a long time, but it really does feel like if something's going to turn this year, either up or down, it's going to be because these stocks either give it up or get back on their horse. I think these stocks end up being the confirmation, not necessarily the driver. And that sounds nuanced. But what I mean by that is instead of them leading the pack up or leading the pack down, they're the ones that are going to have to confirm a move in the broader market. Because right now we still do have the the broadening out, so to speak, of the market that occurred. You still have appetite for risk mm-hmm. in places that we didn't have it in a lot of last year. These stocks will be, I think, then if people are putting new capital to work, right? When people do finally start to take money out of money markets as rates fall, if you're putting new capital to work, if you're going to put it in a crowded trade and in a trade that has been really popular and is obviously a portion of everybody's portfolio, mm-hmm. I think that's just confirmation of things going further up. Yeah, and to Guy's point about Apple, you know, it sold off, what, 10%. It's mm-hmm. the largest market cap company in every index. But like, look at like what NVIDIA has done. This is now a $1.35 trillion market cap company that's just gained $150 billion in market cap, you know what I mean, in a very short period of time. And if they could pull that one up here too, as you talk about crowded trades and you talk about money moving around, you know, this Microsoft's gone sideways. You've seen money move into, let's say, something like like that. And we've talked about this name for the last couple of days or so, like like playing for a breakout and it looks pretty interesting. But guy, still well above its 200-day moving average. So I guess my point is, like, why do we focus on some of the shiniest objects sometimes? Because they do detail some important, I think, little tidbits about market sentiment 100%. and where people are going. There's no question about it. I mean, people look at this and then equate what's going. I mean, they look at NVIDIA, they look at Microsoft, for example, and then they sort of conflate, I think, to a certain degree, what's going on in the broader market and what should be going on with, obviously, the economy. And I think they're completely mutually exclusive. But you know, again, NVIDIA, it terrifies me. People say it's growing into its valuation, and I get it. I mean, you talk about people being ahead of their skis and adding that type of market cap in that short period of time with the gaps that exist technically on the downside. That's, to me, a time bomb waiting to happen. I don't know what it's on in the wake of, I mean, there's a Taiwan election we're going to have over yeah, the next few yeah. days, which could be, you know, a lot of things that people are not focused on. NVIDIA has a tremendous risk factor when it comes to China-Taiwan relationships. I'm just going to throw that out there as sort of a tail risk. In terms of Apple, I think analysts are starting to come to the realization that it's an expensive stock, you know, mid-single digits EPS, mid-single digits revenue, margins that have flatlined for, for, you know, for the last couple quarters, at least if not longer. And they're saying to themselves, wait a second, in this environment, that's just an expensive stock. Of course, the flip side is, as money moves into the market seemingly every day, and we've said this 100 times, Apple wins to passive investing more than any other company out there. So there's so many dynamics at yeah. work right now, that, and that's some of the things you have to think about. All right, so tee up your questions here. We're going to get to oh, them I got in, a, few in, here. in a second here. But um, I want to hit this really quickly. Tesla kind of fits that. Um, so, you know, it's interesting that that, NVIDIA is nearly double the market cap of Tesla. Think about that. Okay. Like, 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 and and how much has changed in the last year Mm -hmm. or so. And that's why this sentiment stuff towards these sorts of names to me are really important. It's one of the reasons why we keep highlighting Tesla in a way, because it, despite being up hundred percent on the year last year, had a really bad fundamental year. You know, earnings are expected to be down 25% year over year, despite sales being up 20%. Their gross margin went from 22 
2022 from 25.5% to like 18.5% last year, expected to rebound a little bit, sitting right on its 200-day moving mm-hmm. average. If you pull that out to a five-year, you could draw the most precise downtrend from its all-time yeah. highs that it's been rejected at each time. You can draw an uptrend from those Jan 2023 lows. You know what I mean? Like you just do it, okay? It's happening. So if this company is not able to guide higher when they report in a week or two, I think the stock's going down. I think it's on its way to 150. But I also, look at that. These guys are good. Yeah. These charts, these are beautiful. Um, I also want to flash up the space um, and, and, and look at what's going on this year alone, okay? So BYD, that's the Chinese manufacturer lower end. They just outsold, as far as units, Tesla for the first time ever. Uh, Rivian there, it's down nearly 20%. Luce is down nearly 20%. Um, you know, uh, Polestar, I mean, it's just, it's it's a bit of a disaster. Every single one yeah. of them, yeah. basically. The so so, so there's something secularly that's going on. Like, listen, this is a big shift, okay? EVs are happening, right? But yeah. the yeah. fact that GM and Ford and some of the big, they pulled back here. These guys have cash burn issues. You know what I mean? And if Tesla has not been able to demonstrate that if they lower prices, they increase demand, which is what they've been doing for the last year and a half by lowering prices, has not increased demand, this sector is going to have some problems. I don't have it in front of me, and I should, but I think Rivian loses... Yeah, about a hundred and forty thousand dollars. No th- more. I think it was like two, two, two hundred. It's up to two hundred. So, yeah. Okay, my point is, yeah. for every car they sell at eighty-five thousand, yeah. and you know, to your point, EV is not going away, but it doesn't mean it's going to be profitable. I mean, there are a lot of businesses that are still around that aren't necessarily particularly profitable. The market is rewarding them for, I guess, future earnings or future profitability. But is that going to happen? And I think, to a certain extent, fundamentals matter. And that pennant formation in Tesla. That we have Next. talked about now for a while. I mean, it's not coincidence that the that the ranges get smaller and smaller with each passing day because we're finding our way into the cone of that pennant. And if you don't believe Dan, if you don't believe me, Elizabeth's not going to talk about single stocks, but let price be your guide because it's going to break one way or another. I think it breaks to the downside. It doesn't matter what I think. Just wait for this thing to sort of show itself. Yeah, just the one thing on Rivian, you know, they're expected to lose, let's call it $10 billion, um, you know, over the next four years before they get to um, profitability. They have $9 billion in cash right now. Okay. So, like, the point is, is like, People go public and they did go public and they raised a lot of money, right? So so they could weather the storm. I think about a Rivian and I say, like, think about buying Tesla 10 years ago. You know what I mean? It was the same arguments about profitability and the like here. So mm-hmm. Liz, what do you think? Just again, we're talking about, we, we can all agree. Generative AI is going to be something that, you know, is we're going to be talking about for years. EVs, we're going to be talking about for years. They're transitioned to autonomous, talking about for years. But sometimes these large secular shifts they have difficult periods, right? Yep. And, and so like, you got to be careful yep. in and around some of the narratives. Well, you can invest in a theme, but if you invest in a theme, which electric vehicles would be one, clean energy would be one, right? You invest in a theme, you have to give it a two to five year time horizon to actually work. Mm-hmm. And if you're early in the time horizon, you have to expect that it's not going to find its footing clearly through that early phase. And I think that's where part of this is falling apart. The other thing is, you know, when you think about if you're an investor right now, there's been all this talk about growth. And obviously there were so many companies in the growth space that had a nice year last year. Why would you invest in companies that are are losing money and not producing that growth today when you can go invest in something that is producing that growth today and that has that track record already I, I, yeah. I mean, I think the question is pretty simple. What, what, one point I think is really important. So, what, so you're saying, Liz, if you're going to invest in some of these trends, you want to be 
diversified. You don't want to have all your eggs in one basket because like some of those stocks that we just like, they're down 90%, you know what I mean? Or whatever. So and, and you have to use some risk management, right? Like, so like, for instance, you have to say to yourself, okay, if I believe that BYD has this massive opportunity in the 20 to $30,000 EV range in China, okay, and they're doing it, they just beat out Tesla, but the stock continues to go lower. You know what I mean? Like you have to look into what's going on there. How unprofitable might they be? How much support do they get from their local government? Is the likelihood of some sort of shadow banning of US companies like Tesla, you know, like you got to dig into the storage, you got to use risk management, and you got to be diversified. Because like, listen, you could have believed in 1999, that the internet was going to change the world. And you wanted to get exposed to any company that was going to basically disrupt an existing industry through the internet. And you would have been 10 years too early mm -hmm. and you could have lost, you know, the NASDAQ sold up 80 some percent from its all time highs in early 2000. So that's the only point I wanted to make. Okay. Well, I think, hold on, oh, okay, there's one quickly, the risk, the, the risk point is a good one. And you have to, in this particular scenario, think about it as two levels of risk that you'd be taking. If you're choosing a couple of these companies to invest in, you're taking the risk on number one, is this theme going to actually come to fruition during my investment horizon, mm -hmm. right? Whatever your horizon is. So you're going to be right about the theme. And then number two, are you going to be right about the company that turns out to be a winner in that theme? These companies will not all be winners, right? Just like not every company that's involved in AI right now in the AI trade, not every single one of them is going to win. And if you don't think that you can, number one, decide that the theme is going to be what you think it is, plus choose the winners, you have to be careful about the risk that you're taking and how much you're exposing yourself to it. What year is this, Dan? Uh, 2024. Yes, yeah. it is. Uh, Jacob and or Steven, if you could put up a 30-year chart of Ford Whoa. for me, just why not? Just indulge me for That's a second. You'll see that T? Ford today <laughs> is trading $11.75. Oddly enough, basically on this date in 1994, 30 years ago, Ford was trading yeah, 11. Look at that. Oh my God. My point is this you, you make an excellent point about BYD, but you can make an argument that the last 15 years have been probably the greatest period of time for auto manufacturers in the history of auto manufacturers. Mm -hmm. The stock market has gone ballistic over that period of time. Ford, which is the granddaddy of them all, along with GM, cannot get out of its own way. So you could just be mired yep. in a shitty industry. For a very but long that's time. That's the point I want to make. I think the easy money has been made in Tesla. If you just want to pull up a 10 year chart of that, and maybe they could look at it on a log basis. But we were talking about this that since the stock went into the SP 500 in late 2020, you ready for this, people? At $232. You know where the stock is trading right now here, people? $232. And the SP has been up 28 or 29% since then. So I think the fundamentals are already starting to wear on this company. And there's so much hype in, in robots and in full self-driving and robo-taxis that people are expecting. And that may all happen. But if this company is basically has the same sort of margins that Ford and GM have making their ICE vehicles, okay, then it's not going to be a great investment from here on out. And you tell me how much of excitement is in and around or embedded in Elon being the CEO of this company. I don't know if you guys caught the uh, Wall Street Journal this weekend about all his drug use and everything like I, that. I, I missed I missed. You it. didn't see it? It, it was an A1 article. Yeah. I mean, these are people, these are executives speaking on out of and anonymity at SpaceX, at Tesla, they're concerned with his drug use. Do you know what I'm saying? So like what I'm saying is there's a good chance he's not the CEO of this company in the not so distant future. Mm -hmm. And you guys tell me at what point, 
like what sort of premium comes mm-hmm. out of that stock at that point. So, so listen, they're going to report in a couple of weeks. Let's see what sort of rabbit they can pull out of the hat. They came in line. Here's the other point. They came in line for their December deliveries, which makes their yearly deliveries of 1.8 million. They've only guided for up like 20% or so as far as units. And as far as sales growth, it's 20% or so. It's just with a lower margin. It's just not that interesting. Anymore. Well, that's the margin story is the story. Okay. We promised it. Yep. Questions. Okay. It. First question is, Somebody just texted me anonymously. They said, Guy, I noticed you've been squinting sort of like something's been getting in your eye during the show. Given, what is that? Side eye? Oh, no. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you exactly what it is. Elizabeth, your left hand, please. Some of you have noticed <laughs> that Elizabeth is engaged. <laughs> so, yes, it's true. Us, Hearts are breaking all across the risk reversal media <laughs> landscape. Congratulations, thank Elizabeth, you. number thank one. You, thank you. This is for you, EY. Matrix of Compassion has uh-huh. been with us from the beginning. You think at this point, small caps, your Ballywick, are too consensus to work in the near term. Oh, take Ooh, a look like at that. Throw up yeah. an IWM chart while we you, got to. Yep, do that. IWM, take it out five years for me. And I think we can answer this pretty easily. So if you look at, obviously, there's been a, a big run up in small caps, Dan. I think we talked about this on the pod on yeah. Monday. Uh, Big run up in small caps, both the Russell 2000 and the S&P 600 since the end of October, both of those up 23 to 24%. Okay, so the reason I wanted to take this out five years, look at what's happened over the last year or so. You see small caps fail at about the same level Mm -hmm. every single time, this time included in that, right? So I do think in the near term, they will come back down. They'll give some of that run back. It was probably a little too far too fast, mostly predicated on the rate moves and the expectation that the Fed is going to cut rates. So on the risk that the 10-year yield goes back up or the risk that we push those rate cuts back further, I do think that small caps are going to take it on the chin in that environment. But the other reason I wanted to take this back five years is because even with this recent run-up, still below where they used to be. Mm -hmm. So again, I mean, I would hope that they give a little back here because it gives us a better entry point, but I do think that it's okay to start entering if they start falling here. And average in, be careful and average in. Uh, There's also, if you want to check my Twitter feed. I was just going to say, at Liz Young Strat, 2.08 p.m. on January the 9th. Wow, look at you, man. Throw that up. I'm on, listen, I'm on top of stuff. stocky. Well, it's not (laughs) stocky. Pull up Elizabeth's tweet and you can see she actually addressed this matrix. Yep, so tweeted this. Uh, about basically the valuations of the Russell 2000 versus the S&P 500 in the 12th percentile. So still pretty low, attractively valued as far as PEs go. Uh, Obviously, we know that you can't use PEs as a timing mechanism, but this is not a situation where you see small caps looking incredibly overbought or incredibly frothy compared to the long term. When I got my retirement fund value number, I, I should know what that is. I don't, but it, I guess it's some financial term. What is a good way to invest for fixed income and asset preservation? Bond funds and ETFs fluctuate with interest rates. That's from James. You might as well ask me what the winning lottery numbers are going to be because I got just as so much chance as answering, but maybe Elizabeth has something here. Well, I mean, look, so there's a lot of different ways to play in the fixed income space. If you have enough money to do single bonds, sometimes that is the best way to do it, especially in treasuries. You can do what's called a bond ladder. I don't, I'm not sure exactly what the time frame is here for this question, but let's say that you are in retirement. So you're no longer earning money and you're going to have liabilities or things that you're going to pay over the course of 
10 to 15 years, you can set up something called a bond ladder. So you've got maturities that line up with when you need that liquidity and the money is safe in the meantime. Um, Bond ETFs are a little bit more volatile than a typical bond. So if that's not to your liking, then you can invest in bond mutual funds, but know that mutual funds are going to be more expensive. The only thing about mutual funds that's good, uh, not the only thing, there are a few things that are good, but one of the things that's good about bond mutual funds is that the manager does have more flexibility to make active bets and they can hold things to maturity if they so choose, which does protect you as well. An unconstrained manager, something you don't see in baseball these days. Dan, this is for you. (laughs) Uh History unbound. How long will Dan let his NVIDIA trade run does he have a target or plan to exit? Now, for you folks that might be new to the show today, you'll be like, what are you talking about? Well, Friday, Dan outlined a bullish trade in NVIDIA. I think the stock was trading, if I'm not mistaken, was it like 490. 490-ish at the time? And you see the run we've had since. Yeah, so we talked about it on Fast Money on Friday afternoon. And again, this is always tough. And one of the reasons why we really love our time slot here for Market Call at 1 o'clock while the market is open, we can kind of talk about these things as the market's moving and you can position yourself as the way we are positioning ourselves here. Um, so we we're talking about Friday after the close on Fast Money. I said to myself, listen, this stock, if you're just looking at things like the RSI, the Relative Strength Index, has corrected over time. It's worked off that overbought condition from the last couple of times it had gotten up to $500. And I said to myself, okay, it was a bad week in the market that first week. They're going to come back to this one. And that technical setup is pretty good. And I also like the fact that their four largest customers, okay, that is Alphabet, it's Microsoft, it's Amazon, and it's Meta. They make up about 45% or so of the revenues. They're all going to report at the end of this month. But but NVIDIA doesn't report until the end of February. So you maybe want to just plan to play that into some of the themes there, their customers. Now, here's the deal. We were looking at the 500 call when the stock was 499. Now, the stock opened on Monday morning at 495. So the prices in which we were talking moved about, a little bit. they moved a little bit. And then it just shot. It went out of the way. If this, if you still like this trade here, right? And let's say you were to buy some calls that you bought on Monday morning or something like that, I'd be rolling them up and out a little bit, right? And so give me yourself, these were February, there were the 500s that cost, I don't know, between 16 and $19, depending upon where the stock was trading on Friday afternoon. But at the time, we were risking about 3% of the stock price for that call. That made some sense to me. I could see this thing checking back. Guy, and, and this is a question for you. Three really sharp up days in a row. At some point, it's going to reverse intraday and it's going to work lower. What's a level that you would look? Obviously, if it got back to 500 just on market sort of stuff, you'd want to take another shot at that point. Maybe. I mean, you. well, let's look at whatever the moving, I can't, my eyes are not as good as they used to be, but whatever that moving average is, I mean, that- 200 is 414. Yeah, I mean- The 50 day is 470. That's the one. The 50 day is where you want to sort of take a look, I would imagine. Sort of 480-ish level makes sense to me because- at a certain point, I mean, now we're talking about parabolic moves in this name, sort of feeding upon itself. And there's seemingly some unnatural things going on. And maybe it's an early year allocation to a handful of names. I don't know. But if there's a rug pull here, I think 500 is going to be the least of your worries. This is for Elizabeth. I think this is right. Island Giza question. Isn't I like this question, by the way. I don't agree with it, but I like it. Isn't it likely cuts come early this year? So the Fed, Jerome Powell, are not seen to be impacting the election, Elizabeth. 
so what's interesting about this election cycle, Powell is not up for renomination until 2026. So he has no political incentive to make any president, either this one or the next one, happy. (laughs) And frankly, I'd be surprised if he wants the job again for the next term. Well, that being said, he was appointed by the former president who's running against the existing president. Yeah, right. But there when that happened, there was a lot of speculation and maybe later confirmation that there was there was political stuff at play with how monetary policy was being run for that little period in between, let's say, December and February of that year. So um, I don't think that there's going to be political incentive for the Fed to cut earlier because of that. I do think that there's political incentive in an election year for neither side of the aisle to cause a problem, right? Nobody wants that on their watch. Um, but no, I don't think the Fed is going to be particularly so, politically pressured. Let, let me let me just take a, a step in, in here. So uh, two elections that I think were really impactful over the last 25 years was 2000. Okay. And we know what happened. The stock market topped out in 2000. The Fed was cutting rates fairly aggressively. And then 2008, and we know that there was a financial crisis and then, you know, the Fed started cutting aggressively. So for anybody who thinks that, you know, the, the, the typical election year playbooks or the, the recession playbooks or the, the yield curve in, in play, like this year, here's one thing I can guarantee you. There are going to be a couple massive surprises at some point this year that turn a lot of consensus narratives upside down. Last year at this time, okay, none of us thought that we would have a regional banking crisis mm-hmm. and we'd see five of the largest 50 banks in the country mm-hmm. go under or go into receivership. None of us thought that some little chat bot that Microsoft had invested a couple billion dollars in was going to infect the entire stock market to the tune of trillions of dollars within, you know, 10 stocks or something like that. So sure as shit, there's going to be some big surprise that happens this year. And, And we've been talking about the geopolitics stuff, man, like this stuff doesn't get better. And guy, you mentioned this maybe a half an hour ago, Jan 13, this Taiwan election. Like, who the hell knows what's going to happen? Who the hell knows what's going to happen in the Red Sea? So we have this situation really quickly with, okay, we're not particularly happy with how the Gaza war is going, right? And and we have to be steadfast as it relates to Israelis. But they got the Gaza Strip. They got uh, the West Bank. So that's Hamas. They just did a drone attack in Beirut, Lebanon, okay, which is obviously Hezbollah is operating on there. So both those two groups backed by Iran. Right. So in the Red Sea, we have the Houthi rebels, okay, who are backed by Iran Mm -hmm. and they're trying to shoot up, you know, any ship that's going through there. So we are like literally this far away from a broader regional war with Mm -hmm. Iran. So and we have crude oil that can't get out of its own way. There there are a lot of cross. The Taiwan thing is absolutely on my radar screen to answer this question. We got two more before Elizabeth has to go. I don't think the Fed, I know a lot of people say the Fed is politicized. I'm not one of those people. I will say that if I got Jerome Powell and put a lie detector on him, I think he probably regrets what happened in late 2018 into 2019, where he got spooked by the stock market and he got browbeat by the then president. But that's for another time. Uh, This is for you, Elizabeth. Hmm. I'm going to sort of gloss over the first part. Eric Lancelotti, if inflation came back, into the picture. Will small caps outperform? Forget about that. What are your thoughts on the cheese curd? That's what he really wants to know. <laughs> I'm from Wisconsin. I love the cheese curd. By the way, I just went to Montreal. Why? You know what? Put- I'm poutine. kidding. Put- poutine? Poutine. Is that how you say that it? That's fries with like gravy, isn't oh, it? I did, not go, I did not go to whatever deli you just said. No, it's, it's fries with gravy, with gravy. and cheese curds. Yeah, it's well. amazing. 
I mean, so yeah, I love the cheese curd, but I am picky about it. I'm, I'm judgy about it. They have to squeak. They got to be fresh. Excuse they got to squeak. Well, what yeah. type, just, just educate me because I'm not familiar with the curd. What cheese is it? A cheddar? It's, is it it's a, like a cheddar ish, uh-huh. but it's almost a, the consistency of a, a mozzarella. Really? Because it's pretty fresh. So the whey is still on the outside uh, of the curd if it's fresh enough and it squeaks on your teeth. I know that sounds so good. More of a, a, a whey guy than curd or curds and whey. Like, what, what, well, what that's you, a Bo Peep you? thing. Yeah. I like, I'm more of a curd than a whey, but that's just personal preference, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, any, but I do want to answer the small cap question real oh. quick. Sorry to get back to business Sorry. here. Um, over the long term, actually, small caps were one of the only asset classes that tended to do well during inflationary regimes. So it was a surprise to some people that they did not do well last year. But I think if you look at when you normally have an inflationary regime, there's there's two different kinds, right? The one that we are we've just gone through and that we're trying to get out of is one that was caused by imbalances. We didn't have enough supply to meet demand, all everything that happened with COVID, and we're just trying to get out of our own way. The inflationary regime that would come after an expansion begins is something that's healthy. It's because demand is healthy. It's because the economy is growing. That is typically when small caps do well. This is still not that regime. So if inflation does in fact go back up, I think rates will follow it up and small caps uh, will get hit by that. Elizabeth has to run. Last question, because she's going to be on what? Closing bell. Clo- that's a show. Yes, closing bell. Yes. You're not ringing the closing bell. You're going no, out. no. That you was last did that week. last week. You did that last by week. By the way, that's a great, oh, yeah. that a new jacket. Love it's it. It's not new, but I don't wear it often because no. it's so memorable. I don't want people but to it is see memorable. It's clearly outfit. memorable. It's so it's memorable. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Is China, this is from Millennial Market. Is China tech bottoming? So if we could do two charts, let's first put up an FXI, Dan Nasty, and take a look at that and put up like a 20-year. I have said for a number of times that 21 and a half or so in the FXI is your line in the sand. We got down there, I think, in 08, 09. I think we traded down there in October of last year, and we're precariously close to being there yet again. It can't get out of its own way. I am concerned, and I think rightly so, Dan Nathan. Yeah, I, I mean, the Shanghai is making 52-week lows here. I guess let, let's focus on the K-Web a little bit, the KWEB, and, and the largest uh, holdings there are um, Alibaba, Tencent, and um, Baidu, I think. And then there's a whole host of other names in there. I mean, you know, looking a little washed out. I, I think the Alibaba is getting close. The sentiment is so bad in yeah. China here that, you know, mm-hmm. again, uh, I, I feel like just like, you know, the sentiment heading into 2023 was so bad in the U.S. market, you could have thrown a dart and 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 you'd have stocks that doubled, you know. So I think you know China's getting there. Maybe there's some sort of capitulation that's ready to happen, Liz. I don't know if you're tracking yeah. the Chinese market that closely. Well, what I would say about it is bottoming, and this goes for any market. Bottoming is a process, not a moment in time, mm. and it's come down a lot. But the bottoming process includes things like you have to look at volume, how many shares are trading at those levels, has it failed enough times, has it tried to get out of its own way and not been able to. Um, This to me, this chart alone looks like we are well into the bottoming process, but that doesn't mean there can't be another little drawdown there. I think China is still in kind of a a world of hurt. Pull up an Alibaba chart, then we'll let Elizabeth go. Pull it up over the last six, seven years or so. You will see over that course of time since Halloween of 2020, this stock has been upper left, lower right. Along the way, Dan, there have been at least 10 or so, 25 to 50% trough bounces off lows. And we might be on the verge of that. This is what I'll watch for, folks. It typically trades 18 million shares a day. You're going to see a day where it trades north of 50 million shares, has a move to the downside. That's the day you get involved. That's what I say in Alibaba. But I want to thank EY, 
from SoFi, the newly engaged. How about that? EY from SoFi. <laughs> to, a, to a very fine young course, man. No, no, also. That goes without saying. Of course. Because Elizabeth, now that I've gotten to know over these years, of course, I mean, it's a it's it's a fait accompli yeah. that she's only going to be betrothed to somebody worthy of her affection. 100%. <laughs> and by the way, um, so Liz is at Liz Young Strat on Twitter. She's okay. also at Liz Young Strat on the Instagram. So we're uh-huh. putting out a lot more content on, on the Instagram. gram. Our, yeah. team, our, our team is, is, is coming up with some great stuff there, trade updates and, and little things that we're looking at. So at risk social media on Instagram. So check it out. Guy is at guy dot Adami on Instagram. And I am at Dan S Nathan uh, at Instagram. So check that out. Obviously check out Liz's blog. That's going to drop tomorrow on the SoFi mm-hmm. uh, investing blog. Mm. So follow us all. Look at there. Look at yeah. SoFi.com slash blog that'll be there the full report so by the way i'll do this for next week this is what i do this is what we'll do next week dan and i will play anybody out there in tic-tac-toe these are the rules i go first if you tie me you win all you have to do to to emerge victorious is render a draw that's for the folks out there but that's it that's it i want to thank everybody for joining i hope you had fun i did see you guys later see ya thanks (laughs)